Welcome to Soul Path Parenting, the podcast that explores how we set our kids up to live their best lives from the start, and how we stay conscious, inspired, and sane while we do it. I'm your host, Amy Breeze Cooper. Did you guys know I have some questions for you? What? What? Okay, here's, here's my first question. What? Is time real? Uh, yeah. Tell me what you know about time. Um, um, it takes time for flowers to grow. Oh, yeah, that's a thing about time. Isn't it takes it? time for flowers to grow. Yeah. What are our flowers like right now? They look like little plants. Yeah, it, too. If we pick them out, we, they, they, they will not grow. Yeah, if we pick them now, they won't grow into flowers, will they? Uh-huh. No. Okay. So the flowers, when we think about our little seeds that are now little sprouts, and we think about them being flowers, is that now or is that the future? Um, um, the, f- the future. Yeah, that's in the future. future. And is it real or is it imaginary, like it's in our mind? Does um, it exist somewhere? Can we go find the future somewhere? The future is real. The future is real? Where is it? Can you go find it and show it to me? I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's not? Those those little seeds that we planted that are turning into flowers, can you go find them? Where are they? Where are the flowers that they're going to turn into? Right now they're just little sprouts, but where are the flowers? Are they in our imagination or are they actually on the plant? They're in our imagination. That's right. Did you know that time is only in our imagination? It's only in our imagination. We only ever have right now. Can you believe it? Yeah. The future is just made up. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. Oh. The only thing we ever have is right now. Oh. I think you might have already known that. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. This is episode 27. And if you've been involved in spiritual conversations for any length of time now, you would already know that time is an illusion, that all we ever have is right now. And yet, when I had the chance to talk with a futurist, you better believe I jumped right on it. I have to say, speaking for myself at least, if I could have a crystal ball and see how things unfold beyond COVID, I certainly would. But on today's podcast, we have the next best thing. We're actually going to be talking with Eric Mead, who is a futurist, an award-winning author, and recently launched an effort in response to COVID-19 to help the world and communities plan their recovery from the pandemic, which is called Beyond COVID. So let's indulge ourselves for the next 40-something minutes and dive into the future, really explore what are the scenarios for the future that are likely, how does Eric see the new normal, and how might we as parents and families prepare for what it's going to look like? You know, my spiritual teachers say it's totally fine to plan. Let's have a plan, and then let's come back to the present moment. So let's dive into the interview with Eric. Hello, Eric, and welcome to the show. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I first wanted to ask 
if you could talk a little bit about what a futurist is and how you came to be one. Sure. So a futurist is somebody who thinks systematically about the future. And there are a lot of different frameworks and ideas about how to do that. I would say uh, it's not something that you see in the classified ads or on you know, LinkedIn job posts and say, oh, I'll give, I'll give a try at that. It's something that when you find out it's a job, you realize, wait, that's how I've been thinking the whole time I've been alive. Um, so that was definitely my experience. I was, uh, I was in China. I had uh, spent six years in China, started out with Melissa and Doug, which is a toy company that uh, yeah. probably most, if not all of your listeners are aware of. And I set up their sourcing office in Shanghai back in like 2002 and then stayed on in China and uh, got married, had a kid, moved to the part of Shanghai where you move when you get married and have a kid uh, from the west side of the river to the east. And uh, in the apartment complex, ran into a guy who was probably the only futurist in China, this American guy uh, working for a, a company based out of D.C. He told me what he did for a living. And I said, that pretty much sounds like what I do for fun, but you're getting paid for it. So a little, <laughs> little bit of networking. And about six months later, I was living in Alexandria, Virginia, working for a think tank uh, with a bunch of futurists. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. The reason I wanted to start out with that question is I've mentioned that I'm interviewing you to some people and that was their first question. So I thought we'd start out there. And also, what inspired you to start Beyond COVID, your new podcast? Well, I I had never had a podcast. I've never really, I, I hear a lot of podcasts because they're played by other people in the house, um, but I haven't been a huge podcast fan. And and I'd spent the first few days of isolation. I'm going into my second month now. I think we, we celebrated our anniversary, one month anniversary of being isolated last night at dinner. And um, so the first few days of being isolated, I was really thinking about, okay, well, you know, I facilitate a lot of meetings. That's where income comes from. Like, what am I going to do and, and make money? And then a few days later, I just kind of gave up on that and said, look, how can I be helpful? And it occurred to me that uh, futurists do have uh, this thing where they, they're able to think beyond current uh, situations and, and offer new points of view on them. Uh, so I said, okay, how can I make that available to the world? So the podcast is one, uh, launched a website at beyondcovid.live. Uh, I originally started thinking it was beyondcovid.live, uh, but that's when you're when you're changing the pronunciation of something that people already know very well, it's, it doesn't go well. So now it's just beyondcovid.live. Uh, so that website has some resources for planning your community's recovery. It has scenarios uh, looking at uh, how this might unfold in different ways. Uh, and then the podcast was part of that, both as research for those for the developing those other resources and just to involve people in conversations that weren't so focused on, okay, how many people died today and how many new cases were there and, and how scared should I be? Right. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, and since you mentioned the scenarios, I'd love to start this conversation there with really if you could help to kind of paint a picture of the different scenarios that you've envisioned together with your team of what life could be like beyond COVID. Sure. So the model for scenario development that uh, that we're using 
uh, envisions four different scenarios and they are different archetypes. So the first archetype is just what's expectable. If you were to describe the next, you know, two, five, 10, typically it'd be out 20 years. I think these days we don't need to look that far out. We'd, we'd be happy to know what, what it'll look like next summer. Uh, so the, these scenarios are a shorter time horizon, but the first one is expectable. So if you wrote down what's going to happen over the next couple of years and showed it to like 10 people you meet on the street, nine of them at least are going to be like, yeah, I've seen those headlines. That's, that's what I think is probably going to happen. Uh, the most likely future uh, rarely happens exactly as it's expected, uh, but this provides a good basis for the conversation about other scenarios that you also would want to consider. So the next archetype is the is a desperate or challenging future. So it's not worst case in the sense of, you know, asteroids hitting, you know, the earth and um, really awful things that would disempower you and, and just leave you incapacitated. But it is a, a feasible set of challenges that would really force you to dig deep and, and uh, come up with some new responses. Uh, so I'll say more about that once I uh, about what that scenario is once we talk about the other archetype, which is an aspirational or surprisingly successful future. So this is where, you know, humans really rise to the challenge, communities come together, uh, new technologies are developed, whatever the mechanism is, uh, but it leads to a future where people are looking back and saying, wow, that was a tough time, but we really made it through. Uh, so I we have developed, and uh, I would typically develop two different scenarios in that aspirational range. Uh, and that's to counteract the tendency we have as humans to, to really elevate things we're afraid of over the things we hope for. So mm. having having two different, not just best case, like, hey, not many people die. It's you have to think harder to come up with two different uh, aspirational paths into the future. So the, the expected one, you know, that's where we're following the the models, and now it's around sixty thousand people expected to die in the U.S. by August. Um, you know, you can see the political blame games going on, uh, as well as a resurgence of of leadership, at least at the government and at the governor and and mayor level, uh, to pull people together and organize. Uh, you can see, uh, you know, the rise in unemployment matching the forecasts. Um, by economists, you have the stock market coming back, you know, near its highs later in the year as as we get through this. Um, so that's that's intended to be what most people would look at and say, yeah, that's that's what I'm expecting will happen. The desperate one gets a little tougher uh, because there is a second wave of the pandemic that's even worse. That's actually what happened in uh, with the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919 where the first wave was not as bad as the second and, and much more death. Uh, and then there was even a third wave the following spring. Uh, so in this one, it does get so bad that there's rioting, there's looting in the U.S. Uh, some countries uh, that are particularly hard hit in the second wave um, do fall into chaos and civil war and governments collapse. Uh, so this mm-hmm. one is much starker and the economy really goes into a depression for you know, upwards of two years. And then the aspirational scenarios are a couple of different ones. Uh, one is where the the scientific effort really saves the day, and that revitalizes our general confidence in science as a way to solve our problems, which then we can apply to 
climate change and the other things that are going wrong with the planet and the species. And then the the other one is where communities come together, much like they did in World War II with Victory Gardens and, uh, you know, I, I forget the exact number of, of aircraft we were making in the U.S. every day at the peak in World War II, but um, more than 1,000, maybe more than 2,000 airplanes coming off the lines every day. Uh, so that you think about doing that with ventilators, doing that with personal protective equipment, and um, really coming together as a community and bringing that spirit of community forward to address the other challenges uh, that we'll face beyond this pandemic. Right. And you've named them. Do you want to share the names that you've given them? Oh, gosh. Uh, the first one is the National Staycation. That's the expectable one. And and the name comes a little bit more from my experience and the other the experience of other folks uh, who are uh, fortunate enough to be handling the, you know, facing this period of crisis in a, in a relatively comfortable way. Um, and then the second one is... Uh, the, the greatest great, depression. The greatest depression. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah. I should have my cue cards. Uh, the the greatest depression. So that really speaks to the economic uh, and psychological toil uh, and in turmoil of this. And then the third one is a new age of science. That's where science saves today with a new vaccine and treatments. And then the last one is coming together, moving forward, which is where communities come together. Uh, we stop consuming a bunch of stuff we don't really need and just really focus on building an economy around our, our actual human needs and um, treating the planet better and, and uh, everything that comes with that. And you said that the expectable scenario rarely happens. So um, I'm curious whether you're by disposition or are futurists generally optimists, realists, or pessimists? And, and sort of among those scenarios, you know, what are you anticipating personally would happen? I would say futurists cover all, you know, all stripes and sizes and, and there are pessimistic futurists who are out there talking about how AI is going to destroy humans. And there are optimistic futurists uh, talking about how, you know, we're evolving as a species to, you know, a collective enlightenment. Uh, I would say in a period of, of crisis like this or and crisis, of course, I spent time in China, so I have to make the requisite mention of the Chinese word for crisis, which includes uh, danger and opportunity. Um, so mm. in periods like this, um, I think there's a collapsing of the time horizon where it's not as important if you're optimistic or pessimistic or what the future is going to be. It's it's given the fact that the future is less certain it still makes sense to explore what it might look like and what are the implications for what I do now. But the emphasis really does have to be on what are you doing right now? So for me, you know, the podcast is a good example. Like, do I ultimately want to be a podcaster? I, I don't know. I'm having fun, but I do know that right now this is something I can do, I can do to be helpful. Mm -hmm. So it's whether you're optimistic or pessimistic, the question is what are you going to do today? And um, it, you know, there's, at least several decades now of positive psychology that says that if you're pessimistic, you're most you're more likely to be right about things. But if you're optimistic, uh, you're more likely to live longer, have better relationships, be healthier, and be happier. So 
based on that choice, I'd I'd probably put myself in the optimistic camp. Yeah. Well, and I I tend to want to I, I love that Chinese notion of crisis where there's danger and opportunity. And I tend to want to focus on the opportunity. And I have in previous episodes uh, since COVID and the stay at home started, but I wanted to really bring a more balanced perspective to this conversation because I do think it's important. And my intention with having this conversation with you is so that parents and families can start to anticipate a little further down the road and and really be, I think, mentally, emotionally, um, maybe even financially, start to think about how we might prepare for what what could happen. And then ultimately, that gives us, I think, more power to be able to learn and ultimately thrive in whatever the new normal is. Um, and so I wanted to just dive a little bit deeper into some areas of what the future might look like post-COVID, because I think there's going to be a new normal. And I've heard you say the same thing, that, I mean, what's your perspective on um, whether things go back to normal or whether we are really creating a new normal? I think we're creating a new normal is as one of my guests on a on a podcast said, you know, that you stretch the rubber band, it never goes completely back to uh, the way it was, uh, even if it doesn't break. But um, I mean, you look back at other things, other big events like nine eleven, changed things in a lot of respects, and in other other ways it didn't. Uh, so uh, it's, I I think they're both. They're both true at the same time. There's a new normal and things will go back. Um, you know, we will leave our homes again. Uh, the stock market, you know, last I checked was up and it's, you know, it was up significantly last week. And um, it seems like that optimism is kind of going back into uh, the the economy that we had before the pandemic. It's interesting that a lot of the conversations I've had have 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 been around how we don't really want that to happen. I mean, if you look at the environmental, um, the positive environmental impact of the economic shutdown, uh, I saw in the news somewhere that there's a city in India where they, you know, they're within, uh, they should have visibility of the Himalayas, but they haven't seen them for decades because of all the air pollution and they can see them again. And so there's a real question in the, I think the opportunity in that word crisis is the opportunity not to go back to habits and, and things that weren't working before that were working in the short term, but um, having taken a break from them, we see their limitations. Right. And so let's delve into that a little bit. I guess I have two questions. One is what would it take for humanity to really choose or be forced, I suppose, to not go back. If that's what, and and I share that point of view, I would love for this to be a step forward. But what would that take? What would that scenario have to look like? Well, it's it's a very relevant conversation for parenting, actually. Because if you think about your your kids and you want them to do something differently it's often those natural consequences that 
lead them to change their behavior. It's not the scolding and the, um, and you know, the timeouts and things. So it's, it is sad in a sense, but I think we really need to suffer before we really change. So to some extent, the fact that we're now talking about, you know, reopening economies and the stock market's coming back and there's this feeling of optimism, uh, there's, there will be some people who say, okay, we don't have to worry about all that stuff anymore and we can just go back to our old ways, uh, which probably in the long term is a negative. So no one wants pain and suffering. And yet at the same time, that's often the only way humans change their ways. It's the same way our, our kids change their ways. Uh, so I guess the short answer is we need to suffer and then and then we change. But that's easy to say from you know, my recording studio and my walk-in closet uh, in, a, in a nice community in Colorado. Right. I, I, I tend to agree, and we've talked about that a lot on this show, actually, that um, the struggle is important for the learning and growth and that we um, really, it's sort of the breakdown before the breakthrough is, is a cycle that we often see. I'm curious to look at some time horizons with you and get a sense of what you're anticipating to happen. Because I think a lot of parents are interested in, um, you know, they're thinking about, okay, well, this school year's over and then we've got the summer and then we've got what's going to happen next school year. So how in the more immediate term, and then we'll talk more longer term, do you see this playing out? So as a good responsible futurist, I'll qualify anything I say that, you know, there are no facts about the future. There's no data about the future, um, but we can think systematically in, and use different models uh, for generating possibilities. I think that uh, there, the pressure to relax the, the economic constraints right now uh, are so severe, you know, so significant that I think we will see that the um, the stay at home orders, all that stuff, relax. Uh, you know, May and June, I could totally see that. Uh, by that point, I'm hoping that the public health infrastructure is up to the challenge of you know tracing new cases, contact tracing of the new cases, and and getting people into quarantine, uh, much the way they're doing in China and, and some other countries that seem to be beyond the the worst of it. Uh, so, at this point, I am anticipating. Um, you know, return to school for us, it's, you know, mid-August in Colorado. I, I anticipate that happening. I anticipate a lot of summer camps, uh, just at least in an, in an abundance of caution being canceled. And uh, so my daughter has a horseback riding camp that uh, she has loved going to for the past few years. I anticipate that's not going to happen. Maybe not even so much for the kids' safety, but for the, um, their, it's an all-girls camp. And there are women in their seventies and eighties who go every summer and as, you know, to manage the whole thing. And, and they all went as, as girls, they went to the same camp. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing, but probably they'll cancel that for this year. Um, they have not yet, um, but we'll be back in school. I think one of the interesting challenges will be uh, unwinding the differences in kids experience throughout this period of crisis. So you know, my my kids are uh, taking charge of their own learning. They both have calls today uh, that they've gotten up for and gotten ready for. They're managing their home their own homework. They're doing great. Uh, 
other kids, if they have one parent at home and the parent is working still at Safeway grocery store um, and there isn't someone around and, uh, you know, their experiences can be very different. So it's going to be interesting to see how schools and even communities can help address the new gaps that will have intensified uh, as we go back into school and, you know, which kids were in third grade and need to, you know, maybe just do third grade again, which kids are in fourth, which kids jumped ahead and are bored in fourth grade now because, you know, they learned so many, um, you know, college science classes on Khan Academy or whatever it is. Uh, and, and what others, uh, supports need to be put in place just to, to get people, uh, get people back on track. And I think that there's a question of what being on track means since we've had this experience of everyone running their own education, uh, or at least the parents, you know, running it, uh, at home. It's an open question to me whether or not, uh, the goal would be to get everyone back at grade level, uh, you know, using the industrial factory model we've, we've used for schools for so many years. So what, what does school look like to have more people, more kids able to drive their own learning if they've demonstrated during this period that they're able to do that? Right. I'm super interested in that education education as, as a topic because we've talked on this show about the fact that we have a model for education that was developed for um, churning out factory workers. In fact, I heard some about that on your podcast as well. Um, and this notion of standardized education and standardized testing and sort of stamping out uh, the output being these sort of uniform students, um, graduates, I should say, is very antiquated. And I'm just curious if you were to um, envision what would be possible for education coming out of this, what would you like to see happen? It's hard. This is another area where my perspective is a little bit skewed because my kids go to public school and the public schools where I live are, are just fantastic in the whole county. You know, I'd be happy to send my kids anywhere. Um, and there is a lot more personalization and, and attention. Uh, so mm. if you're thinking more broadly, um, it's, it's a tough nut to crack and probably the change would, would come only from students I mean, I don't know if, if there's going to be a, a student revolt in August or September, but uh, students just indicating that they really can't be bothered to go along with the old, um, the old model, and then parents maybe supporting them and advocating for, um, for changes. And people have been advocating for those changes for a long time. It could be that this experience gives the evidence base to say, "Hey, we're not just saying, you know." you know, pie in the sky things about kids being able to manage their education, like they actually just did it for, for two or three months. Um, right. So. It feels kind of exciting as this sort of um, coincidental test case for new ways of doing things. And I'm certainly not saying that this um, setup that we have now is ideal. Um, you know, we have a, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and unfortunately, you know, our fourth grader, she can, she can breeze through everything she's tasked with because she's 
given assignments where you read and then you answer in full sentences, whereas the seven-year-old's basically trying to do almost like worksheets on a computer interface. So his experience, and he's he loves computers, so he's excited that he's building new computer skills. But oh my gosh, 80% of the time is actually just figuring out how to copy paste and draw right. lines on the computer rather than what he might have done by hand before to fill out a worksheet, you know, connecting the coin with the um, how much it's worth, right? And so I'm not saying that what we have today is perfect. Uh, My seven-year-old is having to take two or three times as long with schoolwork as uh, my nine-year-old, but um, it does give a really interesting starting point for a conversation about how things could be different. Yeah, I had the the sense yesterday that I, I was living in a co-working space because I went down. So I've been working up in, in my bedroom. My uh, wife is working from home and has a, like a loft office area. Uh, and then my daughter was like on zoom calls with teachers in her bedroom. And my son was down at the, at the dinner table. Uh, and I went down for lunch. My, my son was there. Also my niece from China uh, is with us. She's staying in the basement, which Thankfully, in like the 48 hours before she arrived for spring break, she's a college student in D.C. She came to stay with us for spring break. Uh, Fortunately, I cleaned out and repainted the basement like, you know, a day or two before she arrived. Otherwise, it would have been a disaster. But she actually has the best room in the house now. So that's nice. Uh, So I went down to the the dinner table and I make myself some lunch. I go to sit down. I say something to my son who's reading on the computer immediately shushes me. My my niece is sitting at the table, like doing a math assignment at her com- on her computer. Uh, so it is just a totally different way of living and really quite a bit more mature than we typically expect of kids. In terms of this being an experiment, the, the framework that comes to mind is just the, the S-curve. And um, there's, a, there's a great book on S-curves by a, a, a couple of people who started in biology and and had seen where the S-curve of, you know, like early adoption hitting a tipping point and then going up to um, stable off, stabilize at some other level. Um, they had seen that in biology and then applied some of that learning to uh, to management and organizations and systems. And the book is called Breakpoint and Beyond. And there are two breakpoints in that. So there's the, um, the bottom before, before the uh, whatever it is takes off on that S curve. That first breakpoint is where it starts to take off, and then the second breakpoint is later on as it starts to stabilize. Uh, and so, getting a little bit conceptual here, but the the shift between that first phase and the second phase, so that from flat to where it's going up really fast, what Malcolm Gladwell uh, Gladwell calls the tipping point in his book. Uh, that's a shift between kind of just tinkering around, fooling around, see if you can find something that works. And then when you find something that works, that's when it takes off. So we have been beyond that second break point where our existing educational structures don't work, but we're kind of at a loss to come up with something that works better or the vested interests around the way it works now are keeping things, you know, held tight. So this is kind of a for this period of forced um, experimentation Right. And innovation may just produce a model that people are like, oh, my gosh, this thing. Oh, you did that. I did that. And I did this other piece of it. And we put it together. And so this could be, 
headed toward the next break, po- break point that says we have this model that works. It's certainly in not having kids at home when their kids are trying when their parents are trying to work from home, um, but put them in a place, give them a lot more freedom, give them assignments for half the day where they just have to organize it and they can go off and do their own projects if they want to, if they're bored with what's going on. Um, and then come together, you know, for gym class, band, and some core, you know, knowledge components that they're that they're going to need. Right. Yeah. It's it's really it's really interesting to think that we're in this time of experimentation. And of course, your kids are a little bit older. Uh, it goes without saying that a lot of working parents will sort of there's still the childcare portion of the equation um, that that is also important. Right. We have a four year old and a three year old. Uh, actually, our four year old will be five in a couple of days. And um, we were really lucky that our nanny just chose our home for stay at home, uh, which is why I can even still do this. But um, there's a lot to work through. But it's really exciting to think about, as you say, that the tinkering around is happening out of necessity. And we might just find something that works and, and sort of creates new possibilities. I'd like to delve a little deeper into the human side of, of what's happening. And I wonder what your thoughts are on how this might change us in the way that we relate to one another, um, the aspects of human connection. Do you see that shifting? There has been a lot of hope expressed around that. I think it would be useful to uh, have a wait and see approach on that, um, you know, at least through the summer to see if people, if communities really do come together and stay together. You know, we've got the howling thing. I don't know if that's nationwide or just Colorado um, where everyone leans out their window or door and howls at eight o'clock um, to have some sense of community. I think it's also gratitude for the healthcare workers and folks on the front lines. Uh, so those things happen uh, during periods of crisis. I remember being in first grade, I think, when the um, during the Iranian hostage crisis, and everyone. I remember people talking about whether they had, you know, tied a yellow ribbon around their tree, and because um, there's a song, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, which was what the theme was, at least where I grew up, uh, mm-hmm. to support to support the hostages. Uh, so. These things happen, and there's a there is a capacity for humans to come together like that in community under stress. How much of it survives? I think we have to wait and see. I, I mean, even the nineteen eighteen and you know Spanish flu pandemic didn't prevent a lot of the nasty stuff that we did to each other in in uh, the twentieth century. So I'm not going to be so focused on my own lifespan to think that you know, the big awakening of awakening of humanity is going to happen when I'm alive. Uh, but is there a little step that's going to be taken that might not attenuate completely for another 10 or 20 years? I think that's, that's a reasonable expectation. I'd love to ask you a last couple of questions. And the first is, as a futurist, what are you doing to prepare yourself and your family for the future? So I have... Uh, with a colleague from a, he's another consultant here in the Denver area. Uh, we've put together a, a white paper 
that's on the beyondcovid.live website uh, that describes how we would suggest uh, planning for, you know, now and into the future for a community. Uh, it's kind of interesting because I was on a phone call with him as, as we first went into isolation. And I really had, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, but I really had the feeling that everything uh, that I had done in life had led up to that moment. <laughs> and the different things with the scenario planning and some other work he and I have done together around how do you establish principles as a strategic construct for moving forward rather than goals and all that stuff that in a complex world, your goals may not be relevant by the time they're dry on the paper. Um, but principles uh, are timeless and and would shape your behavior in any circumstance. Uh, so I really felt like all these things were coming together um, that I'd done in my life. And, and so he and I put together this paper and I've, I'm really, I'm proud of it in the sense that I really, I really do believe that it will have value for people. Um, so that's available and just, and put out there. Uh, so I would say that it, it also reflects the way I'm handling this as a, you know, father, husband, um, in, independent professional. And it really is think about the different futures that could happen. Uh, use a, you know, a scenario method or some method to get out of yourself and get out of the the present moment and and just see how it might unfold. And then when you when you look across those futures, ask yourself if you're if you make it through this period the way that you would like to make it through, what are the statements about you and your your situation that absolutely will be true um, you know, 2 years from now, 5 years from now. And and then form uh, a set of principles that are given what you know, are more likely than other principles to make those statements true about you at some future date. So one of them, and I, this is a little bit facetious, but it's actually, I mean, it's, it's also true. One of my principles that I decided on early on was that, uh, or the outcomes that I knew was we would not run out of money if you know we would be able to sustain ourselves as a family through this through this period of crisis not knowing how long it was going to last so one one of the first things i did was i looked for the best um or i guess the longest 0% apr uh credit card offer and uh it ended up being something with capital one 15 months 0% uh no fee so i applied it came in the mail for, of course the first thing i did was you know dump about 300 bucks on uh podcasting equipment because uh, by that point, I decided uh, that's what I was going to do. But but the principle there is to stay stay funded, to fund the essential things so you know that your family can make it through. So having, you know, 30 grand of credit <laughs> that I don't have to pay back for a while, uh, that was a way to meet that objective. Um, and there might be others. Uh, so look at the different futures, how they could unfold. Decide what the core things are that will be true about you on the other side of it. Develop principles to um, that, given what you know, are are likely to lead those outcomes to occur. And then in the paper, we also talk about how you can test drive those principles. Then go back into the different scenarios you developed and say, okay, how would I apply these principles behaviorally in each scenario? Do the scenarios work? Do I really think they're going to lead towards the outcomes I want? Uh, mm -hmm. If not, change them. And then... Um, really shift. There's a shift in in what you're measuring. Uh, so, as, so it, for an organization, that means we're not going to measure how 
we're not going to measure our profitability right now. We're not going to measure how much impact we're making, you know, on our communities. What we're really going to focus on is are we are we healthy? Are we staying together? Are we connected? Uh, are we improving the the likelihood uh, that we will make it through this and and live to fight another day? For a family, I think that means like measures like how much screen time are my kids using? Those kind of go away. And the thing is, the measurement is, are my kids um, handling this? Are they within the range of, you know, stress and anxiety? And, you know, if another Netflix movie or or a few more hours of Minecraft are going to offer them a coping mechanism, then then that's okay. So the the measurements really turn toward, are we living in accordance with the principles that we've established? You know, am I making frivolous financial decisions or am I really focused on on um, on funding the essentials? Uh, and so am I following the principles? Are we healthy and are we are we connected to one another? Are we um, being there for one another in, in troubling times? And are we aware? Are we sensitive to things that are happening in the environment that uh, that might lead us to act differently? Uh, if we recognize them. So the situational awareness, as well as the internal awareness of how we're doing uh, collectively and individually. I think that's just so helpful as a context uh, for how to think about this. And, um, And I also love that you mentioned screen time, because that's a conversation that, you know, there's, it's like we had the old set of rules that we, or standards that we held ourselves to as parents. And right now, we just need to reset <laughs> and really right. focus on what's important. And if if screen time goes up, screen time goes up. Let's all get through this and keep everyone as healthy as we can. And one last point I'd make just to to double down on this futurist thing is just to to make it an open conversation in the family that these things happen and people make it through and we're going to make it through and um and you will look back on this and it'll probably be a pretty, you know, it'll be a pretty meaningful experience to have gone through. Um, but this this stuff happens. This is part of human life. Right. My last question, this podcast is really focused on how we set our kids up to live their best lives. And I'm interested in your thoughts on what's the most important thing we can be doing right now uh, towards that end. I think recognizing um, the inherent dignity of a child's experience of this um, and that you won't fully understand it, um, but to, to, I guess, create the space for them to have an experience of it and to take the actions that are going to work for them um, without, without trying to over control. You know, I, my favorite um, uh, parenting self-help book is probably the poem on children from Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, where he says, you know, they come through you, but not from you. And um, I've really stepped back actually in my parenting. I mean, my kids are older than yours. They, you know, they really don't need much attention to to get their schoolwork done throughout the workday. So I'm in a unique and, and fortunate position in that respect. Um, but I have dialed down both my criticism of of screen time and my, you know, uh, kind of trying to direct their experience, and I'm and just letting them 
it's a weird time. And if they're going to be successful in life, it's going to be because they develop the resilience to sort out whatever is happening in their lives. And there's a, most of the stuff in their lives that will happen. I won't be the best judge of what they should do anyway. So why not give them the opportunity to practice that right now while they're, you know, locked in the house <laughs> uh, and doing Zoom calls with their teachers? I love that. And I've gotten so much out of our conversation today. Thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts and perspective on the show today. Thanks a lot, Amy. As we conclude today's episode, there are two things that Eric mentioned that I just thought were so powerful and I want to point back to. And the first is his idea of defining a set of principles. And at the end of each show, if you've listened before, you know that we like to highlight a nugget of inspiration that you can apply in your own life because that's really taking action is what makes the difference in our lives. And this week, that's what I would encourage you to do. I think this idea of setting principles rather than having concrete specific plans is such a powerful way of approaching life because the principles will guide your behavior. And so you don't need a specific plan, especially in such a time of uncertainty. And Eric shared a few of his around staying funded, around the way they're thinking about health and being healthy with really looking more at their anxiety and stress levels than the amount of screen time that the kids get if they're connected to one another. And I would just encourage you to think about what's important to you and then how you might behave based on those principles. The second thing I'd like to point back to is what Eric mentioned is his greatest parenting inspiration, which is the poem on children that's a part of Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. And To be honest with you, I don't think I had looked at the prophet in at least a decade until Eric brought this up. And it's not terribly long, but it is so powerful. And it it was so ahead of its time. This was written in 1923, almost 100 years ago. I just think his words are so profound. So if you're interested in hearing this poem, this will be the last bit of this episode And I'm just going to read it to you. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children, as living arrows, are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, 
For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. And with that, I will wish you a wonderful week until we talk again. Thank you so much for listening.